All right, hey everyone. Um, I first, of course, have to start off by saying that I'm so very sorry that I haven't posted in a long time. Um, this keeps coming up and it's, it sucks and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be this way, but uh, sometimes there's just like a lot of things that go on in my life at one time. I've been trying to find a, uh, a job, so I've been looking, I've been really mainly focusing on that lately. Um, and I know many of you that are listening are probably not listening to it week after week, so you're not really missing much, or at least I hope. But for those of you that are, um, I do apologize. That's not what I want to continue doing, but I finally feel like I have the time and the space to continue. And I really want to continue this book, of course, because this is my favorite and I don't want to mess it up. So um, I just want to say thank you for sticking with me if you have. Um, and I hope that you continue to bear with me. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to keep doing this on a more regular basis. So thank you for your patience. I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there really isn't much else to say. Um, hopefully you remember what happened this in the first first what was it first one chapters one through six um hopefully you remember all of what went on uh if not feel free to go back and reread the first reread or re-listen to the first episode that i posted um because i'm just gonna jump right into this next one because there's so many things i could say but i don't want to go on a tangent so um i hope you guys like it i would love to hear from you and have a great week ahead. I'll see you guys next week. Chapter 6 Some things are hard to remember. I'm thinking now of when Stradlater got back from his date with Jane. I mean, I can't remember exactly what I was doing when I heard his goddamn stupid footsteps coming down the corridor. I probably was still looking out the window, but I swear I couldn't remember. I was so damn worried, that's why. When I really worry about something, I don't just fool around. I even have to go to the bathroom when I worry about something, only I don't go. I'm too worried to go. I don't want to interrupt my worrying to go. If you knew Stradlater, you'd have been worried too. I had double dated with that bastard a couple of times and I know what I'm talking about. He was unscrupulous. He really was. Anyway, the corridor was all linoleum and all and you could hear his goddamn footsteps coming right towards the room. I don't even remember where I was sitting when he came in, at the window, or in my chair, or his. I swear, I can't remember. He came in griping about how cold it was. Then he said, where the hell is everybody? It's like a goddamn morgue around here. I didn't even bother to answer him. If he was so goddamn stupid not to realize it was Saturday night and everybody was out, or asleep, or home, for the weekend, I wasn't going to break my neck telling him. He started getting undressed. He didn't say one goddamn word about Jane. Not one. Neither did I. I just watched him. All he did was thank me for letting him wear my hound's tooth. He hung it up on a hanger and put it in the closet. Then, when he was taking off his tie, he asked me if I'd written his goddamn composition for him. I told him it was over on his goddamn bed. He walked over and read it while he was unbuttoning his shirt. He stood there, reading it, and sort of stroking his bare chest and stomach with this very stupid expression on his face. He was always stroking his stomach or his chest. He was mad about himself. All of a sudden, he said, For Christ's sake, Holden, this is about a goddamn baseball glove. So what? I said, cold as hell. What do you mean, so what? 
I told you it had to be about a goddamn room or a house or something. You said it had to be descriptive. What the hell's the difference if it's about a baseball glove? God damn it. He was sore as hell. He was really furious. You always do everything back asswards. He looked at me. No wonder you're flunking the hell out of here, he said. You don't do one damn thing the way you're supposed to. I mean it. Not one damn thing. All right, give it back to me then, I said. I went over and pulled it right out of his goddamn hand. Then I tore it up. What the hell did you do that for, he said. I didn't even answer him. I just threw the pieces in the wastebasket. Then I lay down on my bed and we both didn't say anything for a long time. He got all undressed, down to his shorts, and I lay on my bed and lit a cigarette. You weren't allowed to smoke in the dorm, but you could do it late at night when everybody was asleep or out and nobody could smell it. Besides, I did it to annoy Stradlater. It drove him crazy when you broke any rules. He never smoked in the dorm. It was only me. He still didn't say one single solitary word about Jane. So finally, I said, You're back pretty goddamn late if she only signed out for 9.30. Did you make her be late signing in? He was sitting on the edge of his bed, cutting his goddamn toenails when I asked him that. A couple of minutes, he said. Who the hell signs out for 9.30 on a Saturday night? God, how I hated him. Did you go to New York, I said. You crazy? How the hell could we go to New York if she only signed out for 9.30? That's tough. He looked up at me. Listen, he said. If you're going to smoke in the room, how about going down to the can and do it? You may be getting the hell out of here, but I have to stick around long enough to graduate. I ignored him. I really did. I went right on smoking like a madman. All I did was sort of turn over on my side and watched him cut his damn toenails. What a school. You were always watching somebody cut their damn toenails or squeeze their pimples or something. Did you give her my regards, I asked him. Yeah, the hell he did, the bastard. What'd she say, I said. Did you ask her if she still keeps all her kings in the back row? No, I didn't ask her. What the hell did you think we did all night? Play checkers, for Christ's sake? I didn't even answer him. God, how I hated him. If you didn't go to New York, where'd you go with her? I asked him after a little while. I could hardly keep my voice from shaking all over the place. Boy, was I getting nervous. I just had a feeling something had gone funny. He was finished cutting his damn toenails, so he got up from the bed in just his damn shorts and all and started getting very damn playful. He came over to my bed and started leaning over me and taking these playful as hell socks at my shoulder. Cut it out, I said. Where did you go with her if you didn't go to New York? Nowhere. We just sat in the goddamn car. He gave me another one of those playful, stupid little socks on the shoulder. Cut it out, I said. Whose car? Ed Banky's. Ed Banky was the basketball coach at Pensy. Old Stradlater was one of his pets because he was the center on the team, and Ed Banky always let him borrow his car when he wanted it. It wasn't allowed for the students to borrow faculty guys' cars, but all the athletic bastards stuck together. In every school I've gone to, all the athletic bastards stick together. Stradlater kept taking these shadow punches down on my shoulder. He had his toothbrush in his hand, and he put it in his mouth. What'd you do, I said. Give her the time in Ed Banky's goddamn car? My voice was shaking something awful. What a thing to say. Do you want me to wash your mouth out with soap? Did you? That's a professional secret, buddy. The next part I don't remember so hot. All I know is I got up from the bed like I was going down to the can or something, and then I tried to sock him with all my might, right smack in the toothbrush so it would split his goddamn throat open. Only I missed. I didn't connect. All I did was sort of get him on the side of the head or something. 
It probably hurt him a little bit, but not as much as I wanted. It probably would have hurt him a lot, but I did it with my right hand and I can't make a good fist with that hand, on account of that injury I told you about. Anyway, the next thing I knew I was on the goddamn floor and he was sitting on my chest with his face all red. That is, he had his goddamn knees on my chest and he weighed about a ton. He had hold of my wrists too, so I couldn't take another sock at him. I'd have killed him. What the hell's the matter with you, he kept saying, and his stupid face kept getting redder and redder. Get your lousy knees off my chest, I told him. I was almost bawling. I really was. Go on, get off of me, you crummy bastard. He wouldn't do it, though. He kept holding onto my wrists, and I kept calling him a son of a bitch and all for around ten hours. I can hardly even remember what all I said to him. I told him he thought he could give the time to anybody he felt like. I told him he didn't even care if a girl kept all her kings in the back row or not, and the reason he didn't care was because he was a goddamn stupid moron. He hated it when you called him a moron. All morons hate it when you call them a moron. Shut up now, Holden, he said with his big stupid red face. Just shut up. You don't even know if her first name is Jane or Jean, you goddamn moron. Now shut up, Holden. God damn it, I'm warning you, he said. I really had him going. If you don't shut up, I'm gonna slam you one. Get your dirty, stinking moron knees off of my chest. If I let you out, will you keep your mouth shut? I didn't even answer him. He said it over again. Holden. If I let you up, will you keep your mouth shut? Yes. He got up off me, and I got up too. My chest hurt like hell from his dirty knees. You're a dirty, stupid son of a bitch of a moron, I told him. That got him really mad. He shook his big, stupid finger in my face. Holden, goddammit, I'm warning you now. For the last time. If you don't keep your yap shut, I'm gonna- Why should I? I said. I was practically yelling. That's just the trouble with all of you morons. You never want to discuss anything. That's the way you can always tell a moron. They never want to discuss anything intelligent. Then he really let one go at me. And the next thing I knew, I was on the goddamn floor again. I don't remember if he knocked me out or not, but I don't think so. It's pretty hard to knock a guy out, except in the goddamn movies, but my nose was bleeding all over the place. When I looked up, old Stradlater was standing practically right on top of me. He had his goddamn toilet kit under his arm. Why the hell don't you shut up when I tell you to, he said. He sounded pretty nervous. He probably was scared he'd fractured my skull or something when I hit the floor. It's too bad I didn't. You asked for it, goddammit, he said. Boy, did he look worried. I didn't even bother to get up. I just lay there on the floor for a while and kept calling him a moron son of a bitch. I was so mad I was practically bawling. Listen, go wash your face, Stradlater said. Do you hear me? I told him to go wash his own moron face, which was a pretty childish thing to say, but I was mad as hell. I told him to stop off on the way to the can and give Mrs. Schmidt the time. Mrs. Schmidt was the janitor's wife. She was around 65. I kept sitting there on the floor till I heard old Stradlater close the door and go down the corridor to the can. Then I got up. I couldn't find my goddamn hunting hat anywhere. Finally, I found it. It was under the bed. I put it on and turned the old peak around to the back the way I liked it and then I went over and took a look at my stupid face in the mirror. You never saw such gore in your life. I had blood all over my mouth and chin and even on my pajamas and bathrobe. It partly scared me and it partly fascinated me. All that blood and all sort of made me look tough. I'd only been in about two fights in my life and I lost both of them. I'm not too tough. I'm a pacifist if you want to know the truth. I had a feeling old Ackley probably heard all the racket and was awake, so 
I went through the shower curtains into his room just to see what the hell he was doing. I hardly ever went over to his room. It always had a funny stink in it because he was so crummy in his personal habits. Chapter 7 A tiny bit of light came through the shower curtains and all from our room, and I could see him lying in bed. I knew damn well he was wide awake. Ackley, I said. You awake? Yeah. It was pretty dark and I stepped on somebody's shoe on the floor and damn near fell on my head. Ackley sort of sat up in bed and leaned on his arm. He had a lot of white stuff on his face for his pimples. He looked sort of spooky in the dark. What the hell are you doing anyway, I said. What do you mean, what the hell am I doing? I was trying to sleep before you guys started making all that noise. What the hell was the fight about anyway? Where's the light? I couldn't find the light. I was sliding my hand all over the wall. What do you want the light for? It's right next to your hand. I finally found the switch and turned it on. Old Ackley put his hand up so that the light wouldn't hurt his eyes. Jesus, he said. What the hell happened to you? He meant all the blood and stuff. I had a little goddamn tiff with a Stradlator, I said. Then I sat down on the floor. They never had any chairs in their room. I don't know what the hell they did with their chairs. Listen, I said. Do you feel like playing a little canasta? He was a canasta fiend. You're still bleeding, for Christ's sake. You better put something on that. It'll stop. Listen, do you want to play a little canasta or don't you? Canasta, for Christ's sake. Do you know what time it is by any chance? It isn't late. It's only around 11, 11.30. Only around, Ackley said. Listen, I gotta get up and go to mass in the morning, for Christ's sake. You guys start hollering and fighting in the middle of the goddamn... What the hell was the fight about anyway? It's a long story. I don't want to bore you. I'm thinking of your welfare, I told him. I never discussed my personal life with him. In the first place, he was even more stupid than Stradlater. Stradlater was a goddamn genius next to Ackley. Hey... I said. Is it okay if I sleep in Eli's bed tonight? He won't be back till tomorrow night, will he? I knew damn well he wouldn't. Eli went home damn near every weekend. I don't know when the hell he's coming back, Ackley said. Boy, did that annoy me. What the hell do you mean you don't know when he's coming back? He never comes back till Sunday night, does he? No, but for Christ's sake, I can't just tell somebody they can sleep in his goddamn bed if they want to. That killed me. I reached out from where I was sitting on the floor and patted him on the goddamn shoulder. You're a prince, Ackley kid, I said. You know that? No, I mean it. I just can't tell somebody they can sleep in- You're a real prince. You're a gentleman and a scholar, kid, I said. He really was, too. Do you happen to have any cigarettes by any chance? Say no, or I'll drop dead. No, I don't, as a matter of fact. Listen, what the hell was the fight about? I didn't answer him. All I did was- got up and went over and looked out the window. I felt so lonesome all of a sudden. I almost wished I was dead. What the hell was the fight about? Ackley said for about the 50th time. He certainly was a bore about that. About you, I said. About me? Yeah, I was defending your goddamn honor. Stradlater said you had a lousy personality. I couldn't let him get away with that. That got him excited. He did? No kidding, he did? I told him I was only kidding, and then I went over and laid down on Eli's bed. Boy, did I feel rotten. I felt so damn lonesome. This room stinks, I said. I can smell your socks from way over here. Don't you ever send them to the laundry? If you don't like it, you know what you can do, Ackley said. What a witty guy. 
How about turning off the goddamn light? I didn't turn it off right away, though. I just kept laying there on Eli's bed, thinking about Jane and all. It just drove me stark staring mad when I thought about her and Stradlater parked somewhere in that fat-assed Ed Banky's car. Every time I thought about it, I felt like jumping out the window. The thing is, you didn't know Stradlater. I knew him. Most guys at Pensy just talked about having sexual intercourse with girls all the time, like Ackley, for instance. But old Stradlater really did it. I was personally acquainted with at least two girls he gave the time to, that's the truth. Tell me the story of your fascinating life, Ackley, I said. How about turning off the goddamn light? I have to get up for mass in the morning. I got up and turned it off, if it made him happy. Then I laid down on Eli's bed again. What are you going to do, sleep in his bed? Eckley said. He was the perfect host. I may, I may not. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. Only I'd hate like hell if Eli came in all of a sudden and found some guy. Relax, I'm not going to sleep here. I wouldn't abuse your goddamn hospitality. A couple of minutes later, he was snoring like mad. I kept laying there in the dark anyway, though, trying not to think about old Jane and Stradlater in that goddamn Ed Banky's car, but it was almost impossible. The trouble was I knew that guy Stradlater's technique. That made it even worse. We once double-dated in Ed Banky's car and Stradlater was in the back with his date and I was in the front with mine. What a technique that guy had. What he'd do was he'd start snowing his date in the very quiet, sincere voice, like as if he wasn't only a very handsome guy, but a nice sincere one, too. I damn near puked listening to him. His date kept saying, no, please, please don't, but old Stradlater kept snowing her in his Abraham Lincoln sincere voice, and finally there'd be this terrific silence in the back of the car. It was really embarrassing. I don't think he gave that girl the time that night, but damn near, damn near. While I was laying there, trying not to think, I heard old Stradlater come back from the can and go in our room. You could hear him putting away his crummy toilet articles and all and opening the window. He was a fresh air fiend. Then, a little while later, he turned off the light. He didn't even look around to see where I was. It was even depressing out in the street. You couldn't even hear any cars anymore. I got feeling so lonesome and rotten I even felt like waking Ackley up. Hey. Ackley, I said, in sort of a whisper, so Stradlater couldn't hear me through the shower curtain. Ackley didn't hear me, though. Hey! He still didn't hear me. He slept like a rock. Ackley! He heard that all right. What is the matter with you, he said. I was asleep, for Christ's sake. Listen. What's the routine on joining a monastery? I asked him. I was sort of toying with the idea of joining one. Do you have to be a Catholic and all? Certainly you have to be a Catholic, you bastard. Did you wake me up just to ask me a dumb qu- Go back to sleep. I'm not going to join one anyway. The kind of luck I have, I'd probably join one with all the wrong kinds of monks in it. All stupid bastards. Or just bastards. When I said that, old Ackley sat way the hell up in bed. Listen, he said. I don't care what you say about me or anything, but if you start making cracks about my goddamn religion, relax, I said. Nobody's making any cracks about your goddamn religion. I got up off Eli's bed and started towards the door. I didn't want to hang around in that stupid atmosphere anymore. I stopped on the way, though, and picked up Ackley's hand and gave him a big, phony handshake. He pulled it away from me. What is the idea here? He said. No idea. I just want to thank you for being such a goddamn prince, that's all, I said. I said it in this very sincere voice. Your ace is Ackley, kid. You know that? Wise guy. Someday someone's gonna bash your- 
I didn't even bother to listen to him. I shut the damn door and went out in the corridor. Everybody was asleep or out or home for the weekend, and it was very, very quiet and depressing in the corridor. There was this empty box of Colino's toothpaste outside Lee and Hoffman's door, and while I walked through towards the stairs, I kept giving it a boot with this sheep-lined slipper I had on. What I thought I'd do, I thought I might go down and see what old Mal Brossard was doing, but all of a sudden I changed my mind. All of a sudden I decided what I'd really do. I'd get the hell out of Pensy. Right that same night and all. I mean, not wait till Wednesday or anything, I just didn't want to hang around anymore. It made me too sad and lonely. So what I decided to do, I decided I'd take a room in a hotel in New York, some very inexpensive hotel and all, and just take it easy till Wednesday. Then on Wednesday, I'd go home all rest up and feeling swell. I figured my parents probably wouldn't get old Thurmer's letter saying I'd been given the axe till maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. I didn't want to go home or anything till they got it and thoroughly digested it and all. I didn't want to be around when they first got it. My mother gets very hysterical. She's not too bad after she gets something thoroughly digested, though. Besides, I sort of needed a little vacation. My nerves were shot. Anyway, that's what I decided I'd do. So I went back to the room and turned on the light to start packing and all. I already had quite a few things packed. Old Stradlater didn't even wake up. I lit a cigarette and got all dressed, and then I packed these two Gladstones I have. It only took me about two minutes. I'm a very rapid packer. One thing about packing depressed me a little. I had to pack these brand new ice skates my mother had practically just sent me a couple of days ago. That depressed me. I could see my mother going in Spalding's and asking the salesman a million dopey questions, and here I was getting the axe again. It made me feel pretty sad. She bought me the wrong kind of skates. I wanted racing skates and she bought hockey, but it made me sad anyway. Almost every time somebody gives me a present, it ends up making me sad. After I got all packed, I sort of counted my dough. I don't remember exactly how much I had, but I was pretty loaded. My grandmother had just sent me a wad about a week before. I have this grandmother that's quite lavish with her dough. She doesn't have all our marbles anymore, she's old as hell, and she keeps sending me money for my birthday about four times a year. Anyway, even though I was pretty loaded, I figured I could always use a few extra bucks. You never know. So what I did was I went down the hall and woke up Frederick Woodruff, this guy I'd lent my typewriter to. I asked him how much he'd give me for it. He was a pretty wealthy guy. He said he didn't know. He said he didn't much want to buy it. Finally, he did, though. It cost about 90 bucks, and all he bought it was for 20. He was sore because I'd woke him up. When I was all set to go, when I had my bags on all, I stood for a while next to the stairs and took a long last look down the goddamn corridor. I was sort of crying. I don't know why. I put my red hunting hat on and turned the peak around to the back, the way I liked it, and then I yelled at the top of my goddamn voice, Sleep tight, you morons! I'll bet I woke up every bastard on the whole floor. Then I got the hell out. Some stupid guy had thrown peanut shells all over the stairs and I damn near broke my crazy neck. Chapter 8 It was too late to call up for a cab or anything, so I walked the whole way to the station. It wasn't too far, but it was cold as hell and the snow made it hard for walking, and my gladstones kept banging hell out of my legs. I sort of enjoyed the air and all, though. The only trouble was, the cold made my nose hurt, and right under my upper lip where old Stradlater laid one on me. He'd smacked my lip right on my teeth and it was pretty sore. My ears were nice and warm though. 
That hat I bought had earlaps in it, and I put them on. I didn't give a damn how I looked. Nobody was around anyway. Everybody was in the sack. I was quite lucky when I got to the station, because I only had to wait about ten minutes for a train. While I waited, I got some snow in my hand and washed my face with it. I still had quite a bit of blood on. Usually I like riding on trains, especially at night with the lights on and the windows so black and one of those guys coming up the aisle selling coffee and sandwiches and magazines. I usually buy a ham sandwich and about four magazines. If I'm on a train at night, I can usually even read one of those dumb stories in a magazine without puking. You know, one of those stories with a lot of phony, lean-jawed guys named David in it, and a lot of phony girls named Linda or Marcia that are always lighting all the goddamn David's pipes for them. I can even read one of those lousy stories on a train at night, usually. But this time, it was different. I just didn't feel like it. I just sort of sat and not did anything. All I did was take off my hunting hat and put it in my pocket. All of a sudden, this lady got on at Trenton and sat down next to me. Practically, the whole car was empty because it was pretty late and all, but she sat down next to me instead of an empty seat because she had this big bag with her and I was sitting in the front. She stuck the bag right out in the middle of the aisle where the conductor and everybody could trip over it. She had these orchids on, like she'd just been to a big party or something. She was around 40 or 45, I guess, but she was very good looking. Women kill me. They really do. I don't mean I'm oversexed or anything like that, although I am quite sexy. I just like them, I mean. They're always leaving their goddamn bags out in the middle of the aisle. Anyway, we were sitting there, and all of a sudden she said to me, Excuse me, but isn't that a Pensy Prep sticker? She was looking up at my suitcases up on the rack. Yes, it is, I said. She was right. I did have a goddamn Pensy sticker on one of my Gladstones. Very corny, I'll admit. Oh, do you go to Pensy? She said. She had a nice voice. A nice telephone voice, mostly. She should have carried a goddamn telephone around with her. Yes, I do, I said. Oh, how lovely! Perhaps you know my son, then. Ernest Morrow, he goes to Pensy. Yes, I do, he's in my class. Her son was doubtless the biggest bastard that ever went to Pensy, in the whole crummy history of the school. He was always going down the corridor after he'd had a shower, snapping a soggy old wet towel at people's asses. That's exactly the kind of a guy he was. Oh, how nice, the lady said, but not corny. She was just nice, and all. I have to tell Ernest we met, she said. May I ask your name, dear? Rudolf Schmidt, I told her. I didn't feel like giving her my whole life history. Rudolf Schmidt was the name of the janitor of our dorm. Do you like Pensy? she asked me. Pensy? It's not too bad. It's not paradise or anything, but it's as good as most schools. Some of the faculty are pretty conscientious. Ernest just adores it. I know he does, I said. Then I started shooting the old crap around a little bit. He adapts himself very well to things. He really does. I mean, he really knows how to adapt himself. Do you think so? She asked me. She sounded interested as hell. Ernest? Sure, I said. Then I watched her take off her gloves. Boy, was she lousy with rocks. I just broke a nail getting out of a cab, she said. She looked up at me and sort of smiled. She had a terrifically nice smile. She really did. Most people have hardly any smile at all, or a lousy one. Ernest's father and I sometimes worry about him, she said. We sometimes feel he's not a terribly good mixer. How do you mean? Well, he's a very sensitive boy. 
He's really never been a terribly good mixer with other boys. Perhaps he takes things a little more seriously than he should at his age. Sensitive. That killed me. That guy Mara was about as sensitive as a goddamn toilet seat. I gave her a good look. She didn't look like any dope to me. She looked like she might have a pretty damn good idea of what a bastard she was the mother of, but you can't always tell. Well, someone's mother, I mean. Mothers are all slightly insane. The thing is, though, I liked old Morrow's mother. She was alright. Would you care for a cigarette, I asked her. She looked all around. I don't believe this is a smoker, Rudolph, she said. Rudolph, that killed me. That's alright. We can smoke till they start screaming at us, I said. She took a cigarette off me and I gave her a light. She looked nice, smoking. She inhaled and all, but she didn't woof the smoke down the way most women around her age do. She had a lot of charm. She had quite a lot of sex appeal, too, if you really want to know. She was looking at me sort of funny. I may be wrong, but I believe your nose is bleeding, dear, she said, all of a sudden. I nodded and took out my handkerchief. I got hit with a snowball, I said. One of those very icy ones. I probably would have told her what really happened, but it would have taken too long. I liked her, though. I was beginning to feel sort of sorry I told her my name was Rudolph Schmidt. Old Ernie, I said. He's one of the most popular boys at Pensy. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I nodded. It really took everybody quite a long time to get to know him. He's a funny guy. A strange guy in lots of ways. Know what I mean? Like when I first met him. When I first met him, I thought he was kind of a snobbish person. That's what I thought, but he isn't. He's just got this very original personality that takes you a little while to get to know him. Old Mrs. Morrow didn't say anything, but boy, you should have seen her. I had her glued to her seat. You take somebody's mother, all they want to hear about is what a hotshot their son is. Then I really started chucking the old crap around. Did he tell you about the elections? I asked her. The class elections. She shook her head. I had her in a trance, like I really did. Well, a bunch of us wanted old Ernie to be president of the class. I mean, he was the unanimous choice. I mean, he was the only boy that could really handle the job, I said. Boy, was I chucking it. But this other boy, Harry Fencer, was elected. And the reason he was elected, the simple and obvious reason, was because Ernie wouldn't let us nominate him. Because he's so darn shy and modest and all. He refused. Boy, he's really shy. He ought to make him try to get over that. I looked at her. Didn't he tell you about it? No, he didn't. I nodded. That's Ernie. He wouldn't. That's the one fault with him. He's too shy and modest. You really ought to get him to try to relax occasionally. Right that minute, the conductor came around for old Mrs. Morrow's ticket, and it gave me a chance to quit shooting it. I'm glad I shot it for a while, though. You take a guy like Morrow that's always snapping the towel at people's asses, really trying to hurt somebody with it. They don't just stay a rat while they're a kid. They stay a rat their whole life. But I'll bet, after all the crap I shot, Mrs. Marl will keep thinking of him now as this very shy, modest guy that wouldn't let us nominate him for president. She might. You can't tell. Mothers aren't too sharp about that stuff. Would you care for a cocktail? I asked her. I was feeling in the mood for one myself. We can go in the club car, alright? Dear, are you allowed to order drinks? She asked me. Not snotty, though. She was too charming and all to be snotty. Well, no. Not exactly, but I can usually get them on account of my height, I said. And I have quite a bit of gray hair. I turned sideways and showed her my gray hair. It fascinated the hell out of her. Come on, join me, why don't you, I said. I'd have enjoyed having her. I really don't think I'd better. 
Thank you so much, though, dear, she said. Anyway, the club car is most likely closed. It's quite late, you know. She was right. I'd forgotten all about what time it was. Then she looked at me and asked me what I was afraid she was going to ask me. Ernest wrote that he'd be home on Wednesday. That Christmas vacation would start on Wednesday, she said. I hope you weren't called home. Suddenly, because of illness in the family, she really looked worried about it. She wasn't just being nosy, you could tell. No, everyone's fine at home, I said. It's me. I have to have this operation. Oh, I'm so sorry, she said. She really was, too. I was right away sorry I'd said it, but it was too late. It isn't very serious. I have this tiny little tumor on the brain. Oh, God, she put her hand up to her mouth and all. Oh, I'll be all right and everything. It's right near the outside, and it's a very, very tiny one. They can take it out in about two minutes. Then I started reading this timetable I had in my pocket, just to stop lying. Once I get started, I can go on for hours if I feel like it. No kidding, hours. We didn't talk too much after that. She started reading this vogue she had with her, and I looked out the window for a while. She got off at Newark. She wished me a lot of luck with the operation and all. She kept calling me Rudolph. Then she invited me to visit Ernie during the summer at Gloucester, Massachusetts. She said their house was right on the beach and they had a tennis court and all, but I just thanked her and told her I was going to South America with my grandmother, which was really a hot one because my grandmother hardly ever even goes out of the house, except maybe to go to a goddamn matinee or something. But I wouldn't visit that son of a bitch more for all the dough in the world, even if I was desperate. Chapter 9 the first thing I did when I got off at Penn Station, I went into this phone booth. I felt like giving somebody a buzz. I left my bags right outside the booth so that I could watch them, but as soon as I was inside, I couldn't think of anybody to call. My brother, DB, was in Hollywood. My kid sister, Phoebe, goes to bed around 9 o'clock, so I couldn't call her. She wouldn't have cared if I woke her up, but the trouble was she wouldn't have been the one that answered the phone. My parents would be the ones, so that was out. Then I thought of giving Jane Gallagher's mother a buzz and find out when Jane's vacation started, but I didn't feel like it. Besides, it was pretty late to call up. Then I thought of calling this girl I used to go around with quite frequently, Sally Hayes, because I knew her Christmas vacation had started already. She'd written me this long, phony letter inviting me over to help her trim the Christmas tree Christmas Eve and all, but I was afraid her mother would answer the phone. Her mother knew my mother, and I could picture her breaking a goddamn leg to go get the phone and tell my mother I was in New York. Besides, I wasn't crazy about talking to old Mrs. Hayes on the phone. She once told Sally I was wild. She said I was wild and that I had no direction in life. Then I thought of calling up this guy that went to the Wooten School when I was there, Carl Luce, but I didn't like him much. So I ended up not calling anybody. I came out of the booth after about 20 minutes or so and got my bags and walked over to that tunnel where the cabs are and got a cab. I'm so damn absent-minded, I gave the driver my regular address, just out of habit. I mean, I completely forgot I was going to shack up in a hotel for a couple of days and not go home till vacation started. I didn't think of it till we were halfway through the park. Then I said, Hey, do you mind turning around when you get a chance? I gave you the wrong address. I want to go back downtown. The driver was sort of a wise guy. I can't turn around here, Mac. This here's a one-way. I'll have to go all the way to 90th Street now. I didn't want to start an argument. Okay, I said. Then I thought of something all of a sudden. Hey, listen, I said. You know those ducks in that lagoon right near Central Park South? That little lake? By any chance, do you happen to know where they go, the ducks? 
when it gets all frozen over? Do you happen to know by any chance? I realized it was only one chance in a million. He turned around and looked at me like I was a madman. What are you trying to do, bud? He said. Kid me? No, I was just interested, that's all. He didn't say anything more, so I didn't either. Until we came out of the park at 90th Street. Then he said, All right, buddy, where to? Well, the thing is, I don't want to stay at any hotels on the east side where I might run into some acquaintances of mine. I'm traveling incognito, I said. I hate saying corny things like traveling incognito, but when I'm with somebody that's corny, I always act corny too. Do you happen to know whose band's at the Taft or the New Yorker by any chance? No idea, Mac. Well, take me to the Edmont then, I said. Would you care to stop on the way and join me for a cocktail? On me, I'm loaded. Can't do it, Mac, sorry. He certainly was good company, terrific personality. We got to the Edmond Hotel and I checked in. I'd put on my red hunting cap when I was in the cab just for the hell of it, but I took it off before I checked in. I didn't want to look like a screwball or something, which is really ironic. I didn't know then that the goddamn hotel was full of perverts and morons, screwballs all over the place. They gave me this very crummy room with nothing to look out of the window at except the other side of the hotel. I didn't care much, I was too depressed to care whether I had a good view or not. The bellboy that showed me to the room was this very, very old guy around 65. He was even more depressing than the room was. He was one of those bald guys that comb all their hair over from the side to cover up the baldness. I'd rather be bald than do that. Anyway, what a gorgeous job for a guy around 65 years old, carrying people's suitcases and waiting around for a tip. I suppose he wasn't too intelligent or anything, but it was terrible anyway. After he left, I looked out the window for a while, with my coat on and all. I didn't have anything else to do. You'd be surprised what was going on on the other side of the hotel. They didn't even bother to pull their shades down. I saw one guy, gray-haired, very distinguished-looking guy with only his shorts on, do something you wouldn't believe me if I told you. First, he put his suitcase on the bed. Then he took out all these women's clothes and put them on. Real women's clothes. Silk stockings, high-heeled shoes, brassiere, and one of those corsets with the straps hanging down and all. Then he put on this very tight black evening dress, I swear to God. Then he started walking up and down the room, taking these very small steps the way a woman does, and smoking a cigarette and looking at himself in the mirror. He was all alone, too. Unless somebody was in the bathroom, I couldn't see that much. Then, in the window almost right over his, I saw a man and a woman squirting water out of their mouths at each other. It probably was highballs, not water, but I couldn't see what they had in their glasses. Anyway, first he'd take a swallow and squirt it all over her, then she did it to him. They took turns, for God's sake. You should have seen them. They were in hysterics the whole time, like it was the funniest thing that ever happened. I'm not kidding. That hotel was lousy with perverts. I was probably the only normal bastard in the whole place. And that isn't saying much. I damn near sent a telegram to old Stradlater telling him to take the first train to New York. He'd have been the king of the hotel. The trouble was, that kind of junk is sort of fascinating to watch, even if you don't want it to be. For instance, that girl that was getting water squirted all over her face, she was pretty good looking. I mean, that's my biggest trouble. In my mind, I'm probably the biggest sex maniac you ever saw. Sometimes I can think of very crummy stuff I wouldn't mind doing if the opportunity came up. I can even see how it might be quite a lot of fun in a crummy way, and if you were both sort of drunk and all, to get a girl and squirt water or something all over each other's face. The thing is, though, I don't like the idea. It stinks if you analyze it. I think if you don't really like a girl, you shouldn't horse around with her at all. 
and if you do like her, then you're supposed to like her face, and if you like her face, you ought to be careful about doing crummy stuff to it, like squirting water all over it. It's really too bad that so much crummy stuff is a lot of fun sometimes. Girls aren't too much help either when you start trying not to get too crummy, when you start trying not to spoil anything really good. I knew this one girl a couple of years ago that was even crummier than I was. Boy, was she crummy. We had a lot of fun, though, for a while, in a crummy way. Sex is something I really don't understand too hot. You never know where the hell you are. I keep making up these sex rules for myself, and then I break them right away. Last year, I made a rule that I was going to quit horsing around with girls that deep down gave me a pain in the ass. I broke it, though, the same week I made it. The same night, as a matter of fact. I spent the whole night necking with a terrible phony named Anne Louise Sherman. Sex is something I just don't understand. I swear to God I don't. I started toying with the idea while I kept standing there of giving old Jane a buzz. I mean, calling her long distance at BM where she went, instead of calling up her mother to find out when she was coming home. You weren't supposed to call students up late at night, but I had it all figured out. I was going to tell whoever answered the phone that I was her uncle. I was going to say her aunt had just got killed in a car accident and I had to speak to her immediately. It would have worked, too. The only reason I didn't do it was because I wasn't in the mood. If you're not in the mood, you can't do that stuff right. After a while, I sat down in a chair and smoked a couple of cigarettes. I was feeling pretty horny. I have to admit it. Then, all of a sudden, I got this idea. I took out my wallet and started looking for this address, a guy I met at a party last year. That went to Princeton gave me. Finally, I found it. It was all a funny color from my wallet, but you could still read it. It was the address of this girl that wasn't exactly a whore or anything, but that didn't mind doing it once in a while, this Princeton guy had told me. He brought her to a dance at Princeton once, and they nearly kicked him out for bringing her. She used to be a burlesque stripper or something. Anyway, I went over to the phone and gave her a buzz. Her name was Faith Cavendish, and she lived at the Stanford Arms Hotel on 65th and Broadway. A dump, no doubt. For a while, I didn't think she was home or something. Nobody kept answering. Then, finally, somebody picked up the phone. Hello? I said. I made my voice quite deep so that she wouldn't suspect my age or anything. I have a pretty deep voice anyway. Hello? This woman's voice said. None too friendly either. Is this Miss Faith Cavendish? Who's this? She said. Who's calling me up at this crazy goddamn hour? That sort of scared me a little bit. Well, I, I know it's quite late, I said, in this very mature voice and all. I hope you'll forgive me, but I was very anxious to get in touch with you. I said it suave as hell. I really did. Who is this? She said. Well, you don't know me, but I'm a friend of Eddie Birdsell's. He suggested that if I were in town sometime, we ought to get together for a cocktail or two. Who? You're a friend of who? Boy, she was a real tigress over the phone. She was damn near yelling at me. Edmund Birdsell. Eddie Birdsell, I said. I couldn't remember if his name was Edmund or Edward. I only met him once at a goddamn stupid party. I don't know anybody by that name, Jack. And if you think I enjoy being woken up in the middle of Eddie Birdsell from Princeton, I said. You could tell she was running the name over in her mind and all. Birdsell. Birdsell from Princeton. Princeton College? That's right, I said. You from Princeton College? Well, approximately. Oh. How is Eddie? She said. This is certainly a peculiar time to call a person up, though. Jesus Christ. He's fine. 
He has to be remembered to you. Well, thank you. Remember me to him, she said. He's a grand person. What's he doing now? She was getting friendlier as hell, all of a sudden. Oh, you know, same old stuff, I said. How the hell did I know what he was doing? I hardly knew the guy. I didn't even know if he was still at Princeton. Look, I said, would you be interested in meeting me for a cocktail somewhere? By any chance, do you have any idea what time it is? She said. What is your name, anyway? Can I ask? She was getting an English accent all of a sudden. You sound a little on the young side. I laughed. Thank you for the compliment, I said, suave as hell. Holden Caulfield's my name. I should have given her a phony name, but I didn't think of it. Well, look, Mr. Coffle, I'm not in the habit of making engagements in the middle of the night. I'm a working gal. Tomorrow's Sunday, I told her. Well, anyway, I gotta get my beauty sleep. You know how it is. I thought we might just have one cocktail together. It isn't too late. Well, you're very sweet, she said. Where are you calling from? Where are you now, anyways? Me? I'm in a phone booth. Oh, she said. Then there was this very long pause. Well, I'd like awfully to get together with you sometime, Mr. Coffle. You sound very attractive. You sound like a very attractive person, but it is late. I could come up to your place. Well, ordinarily, I'd say grand. I mean, I'd love to have you drop up for a cocktail, but my roommate happens to be ill. She's been laying here all night without a wink of sleep. She just this minute closed her eyes and all, I mean. Oh, that's too bad. Where are you stopping at? Perhaps we could get together for cocktails tomorrow. I can't make it tomorrow, I said. Tonight's the only time I can make it. What a dope I was. I shouldn't have said that. Oh, well, I'm awfully sorry. I'll say hello to Eddie for you. Will you do that? I hope you enjoy your stay in New York. It's a grand place. I know it is. Thanks. Good night, I said. Then I hung up. Boy, I really fouled that up. I should have at least made it for cocktails or something. Chapter 10 It was still pretty early. I'm not sure what time it was, but it wasn't too late. The one thing I hate to do is go to bed when I'm not even tired, so I opened my suitcases and took out a clean shirt, and then I went in the bathroom and washed and changed my shirt. What I thought I'd do... I thought I'd go downstairs and see what the hell was going on in the lavender room. They had this nightclub, the lavender room in the hotel. While I was changing my shirt, I damn near gave my kid sister Phoebe a buzz. I certainly felt like talking to her on the phone. Somebody with sense and all, but I couldn't take a chance on giving her a buzz because she was only a little kid and she wouldn't have been up, let alone anywhere near the phone. I thought I'd maybe hanging up if my parents answered, but that wouldn't have worked either. They'd know it was me. My mother always knows it's me. She's psychic. But I certainly wouldn't have minded shooting the crap with old Phoebe for a while. You should see her. You never saw a little kid so pretty and smart in your whole life. She's really smart. I mean, she's had all A's ever since she started school. As a matter of fact, I'm the only dumb one in the family. My brother DB's a writer and all, and my brother Allie, the one that died, that I told you about, was a wizard. I'm the only really dumb one, but... You ought to see old Phoebe. She has this sort of red hair, a little bit like Allie's was, that's very short in the summertime. In the summertime, she sticks up behind her ears. She has nice, pretty little ears. In the wintertime, it's pretty long, though. Sometimes my mother braids it, and sometimes she doesn't. It's really nice, though. 
She's only ten. She's quite skinny, like me, but nice skinny. Roller skate skinny. I watched her once from the window when she was crossing over Fifth Avenue to go to the park, and, and that's what she is. Roller skate skinny. You'd like her. I mean, if you tell old Phoebe something, she knows exactly what the hell you're talking about. I mean, you can even take her anywhere with you. If you take her to a lousy movie, for instance, she knows it's a lousy movie. If you take her to a pretty good movie, she knows it's a pretty good movie. DB and I took her to see this French movie, The Baker's Wife, with Ray Moo in it. It killed her. Her favorite is The 39 Steps, though, with Robert Dinot. She knows the whole goddamn movie by heart because I've taken her to see it about ten times. When old Dinot comes up to the Scotch farmhouse, for instance, when he's running away from the cops and all, Phoebe will say right out loud in the movie, right when the Scotch guy in the picture says it, Can you eat the herring? She knows all the talk by heart. And when this professor in the picture that's really a German spy sticks up his little finger with part of the middle joint missing to show Robert Dinot, old Phoebe beats him to it. She holds up her little finger at me in the dark, right in front of my face. She's alright. You'd like her. The only trouble is she's a little too affectionate sometimes. She's very emotional for a child. She really is. Something else she does, she writes books all the time. Only she doesn't finish them. They're all about some kid named Hazel Weatherfield. Only old Phoebe spells it Hazel. Old Hazel Weatherfield is a girl detective. She's supposed to be an orphan, but her old man keeps showing up. Her old man's always a tall, attractive gentleman about 20 years of age. That kills me, old Phoebe. I swear to God you'd like her. She was smart even when she was a very tiny little kid. When she was a very tiny little kid, I and Allie used to take her to the park with us especially on Sundays. Allie had this sailboat he used to like to fool around with on Sundays and we used to take old Phoebe with us. She'd wear white gloves and walk right between us like a lady and all. And when Allie and I were having some conversation about things in general, old Phoebe would be listening. Sometimes you'd forget she was around because she was such a little kid, but she'd let you know. She'd interrupt you all the time. She'd give Allie or I a push or something and say, Who? Who said that? Bobby or the lady? And we'd tell her who said it, and she'd say, Oh, and go right on listening. She killed Allie, too. I mean, he liked her, too. She's ten now, and not such a tiny little kid anymore, but she still kills everybody. Everybody with any sense, anyway. Anyway, she was somebody you always felt like talking to on the phone. But I was too afraid my parents would answer, and then they'd find out I was in New York and kicked out of Pensy. So I just finished putting on my shirt... Then I got all ready and went down in the elevator to the lobby to see what was going on. Except for a few pimpy-looking guys and a few hoary-looking blondes, the lobby was pretty empty. But you could hear the band playing in the lavender room, and so I went in there. It wasn't very crowded, but they gave me a lousy table anyway, way in the back. I should have waved a buck under the headwaiter's nose. In New York, boy, money really talks. I'm not kidding. The band was putrid. Buddy Singer. Very brassy, but not good brassy. Corny brassy. Also, there were very few people around my age in the place. In fact, nobody was around my age. They were mostly old, show-offy-looking guys with their dates. Except at the table right next to me. At the table right next to me, there were these three girls around 30 or so. The whole three of them were pretty ugly, and they all had on the kind of hats that you knew they didn't really live in New York. But one of them, the blonde one, wasn't too bad. She was sort of cute, the blonde one, and I started giving her the old eye a little bit, 
but just then the waiter came up for my order. I ordered a scotch and soda and told him not to mix it. I said it fast as hell because if you hem and haul, they think you're under 21 and won't sell you any intoxicating liquor. I had trouble with him anyway, though. I'm sorry, sir, he said, but do you have some verification of your age? Your driver's license, perhaps? I gave him this very cold stare like he'd insulted the hell out of me and asked him, Do I look like I'm under 21? I'm sorry, sir, but we have our- Okay, okay, I said. I figured the hell with it. Bring me a Coke. He started to go away, but I called him back. Can't you stick a little rum in it or something? I asked him. I asked him very nicely and all. I can't sit in a corny place like this cold sober. Can't you stick a little rum in it or something? I'm very sorry, sir, he said, and beat it on me. I didn't hold it against him, though. They lose their jobs if they get caught selling to a miner. I'm a goddamn miner. I started giving the three witches at the next table the eye again. That is, the blonde one. The other two were strictly from hunger. I didn't do it crudely, though. I just gave all three of them this very cool glance. What they did, though, the three of them, when I did it, they started giggling like morons. They probably thought I was too young to give anybody the ones over. That annoyed the hell out of me. You'd have thought I wanted to marry them or something. I should have given them the freeze after they did that, but the trouble was, I really felt like dancing. I'm very fond of dancing sometimes, and that was one of the times. So all of a sudden, I sort of leaned over and said, Would any of you girls care to dance? I didn't ask them crudely or anything. Very suave, in fact, but goddammit, they thought that was a panic too. They started giggling some more. I'm not kidding, they were three real morons. Come on, I said. I'll dance with you one at a time, all right? How about it? I really felt like dancing. Finally, the blonde one got up to dance with me because you could tell I was really talking to her, and we walked out to the dance floor. The other two gruels nearly had hysterics when we did. I certainly must have been very hard up to even bother with any of them, but it was worth it. The blonde was some dancer. She was one of the best dancers I'd ever danced with. I'm not kidding, some of these very stupid girls can really knock you out on a dance floor. You take a really smart girl and half the time she's trying to lead you around the dance floor, or else she's such a lousy dancer, the best thing to do is stay at the table and just get drunk with her. You really can dance, I told the blonde one. You ought to be a pro, I mean it. I danced with a pro once and you're twice as good as she was. Did you ever hear of Marco and Miranda? What? She said. She wasn't even listening to me. She was looking all around the place. I said, did you ever hear of Marco and Miranda? I don't know. No, I don't know. Well, they're dancers. She's a dancer. She's not too hot, though. She does everything she's supposed to, but she's not so hot anyway. You know when a girl's really a terrific dancer? What did you say? She said. She wasn't listening to me, even. Her mind was wandering all over the place. I said, do you know when a girl's really a terrific dancer? Uh-huh. Well where I have my hand on your back. If I think there isn't anything underneath my hand, no can, no legs, no feet, no anything, then the girl's a really terrific dancer. She wasn't listening, though, so I ignored her for a while. We just danced. God, could that dopey girl dance. Buddy Singer and his stinking band was playing just one of those things, and even they couldn't ruin it entirely. It's a swell song. I didn't try any trick stuff while we danced, I hate a guy that does a lot of show-off tricky stuff on the dance floor, but I was moving her around plenty and she stayed right with me. The funny thing is, I thought she was enjoying it too, till all of a sudden she came out with this very dumb remark. I and my girlfriend saw Peter Lorre last night, she said. 
the movie actor, and person who's buying a newspaper. He's cute. You're lucky, I told her. You're really lucky, you know that? She was really a moron, but what a dancer. I could hardly stop myself from sort of giving her a kiss on the top of her dopey head. You know, right where the part is and all. She got sore when I did it. Hey, what's the idea? Nothing, no idea. You really can dance, I said. I have a kid sister that's only in the goddamn fourth grade. You're about as good as she is, and she can dance better than anybody living or dead. Watch your language, if you don't mind. What a lady, boy. A queen, for Christ's sake. Where are you girls from, I asked her. She didn't answer me, though. She was busy looking around for old Peter Lorre to show up, I guess. Where are you girls from, I asked her again. What? She said. Where are you girls from? Don't answer if you don't feel like it. I don't want you to strain yourself. Seattle, Washington, she said. She was doing me a big favor to tell me. You're a very good conversationalist, I told her. You know that? What? I let it drop. It was over her head anyway. Do you feel like jitterbugging a little bit if they play a fast one? Not corny jitterbug, not jump or anything, just nice and easy. Everybody will all sit down when they play a fast one except the old guys and the fat guys, and we'll have plenty of room, okay? It's immaterial to me, she said. Hey, how old are you anyway? That annoyed me for some reason. Oh, Christ, don't spoil it, I said. I'm 12, for Christ's sake. I'm big for my age. Listen, I told you about that. I don't like that type of language, she said. If you're going to use that type of language, I can go sit down with my girlfriends, you know. I apologized like a madman because the band was starting a fast one. She started jitterbugging with me, but just very nice and easy, not corny. She was really good. All you had to do was touch her. And when she turned around, her pretty little butt twitched so nice and all. She knocked me out. I mean it. I was about half in love with her by the time we sat down. That's the thing about girls. Every time they do something pretty, even if they're not much to look at, or even if they're sort of stupid, you fall half in love with them. And then you never know where the hell you are. Girls. Jesus Christ. They can drive you crazy. They really can. They didn't invite me to sit down at their table, mostly because they were too ignorant, but... I sat down anyway. The blonde I'd been dancing with's name was Bernice something. Crabs or Krebs. The two ugly ones' names were Marty and Laverne. I told them my name was Jim Steele, just for the hell of it. Then I tried to get them in a little intelligent conversation, but it was practically impossible. You had to twist their arms. You could hardly tell which was the stupidest of the three. And the whole three of them kept looking all around the goddamn room, like as if they expected a flock of goddamn movie stars to come in any minute. They probably thought movie stars always hung out in the lavender room when they came to New York instead of the store club or El Morocco and all. Anyway, it took me about a half hour to find out where they all worked and all in Seattle. They all worked in the same insurance office. I asked them if they liked it, but do you think you could get an intelligent answer out of those three dopes? I thought the two ugly ones, Marty and Laverne, were sisters, but they got very insulted when I asked them. You could tell neither one of them wanted to look like the other one, and you couldn't blame them, but it was very amusing anyway. I danced with them all, the whole three of them, one at a time. The one ugly one, Laverne, wasn't too bad a dancer, but the other one, Old Marty, was murder. Old Marty was like dragging the Statue of Liberty around the floor. The only way I could even half enjoy myself dragging her around was if I amused myself a little, so I told her I just saw Gary Cooper, the movie star, on the other side of the floor. Where? she asked me, excited as hell. Where? Oh, you just missed him. He just went out. Why didn't you look when I told you? 
She practically stopped dancing and started looking over everybody's heads to see if she could see him. I'll shoot, she said. I'd just about broken her heart. I really had. I was sorry as hell I'd kidded her. Some people you shouldn't kid, even if they deserve it. Here's what was very funny, though. When we got back to the table, old Marty told the other two that Gary Cooper had just gone out. Boy, old Laverne and Bernice nearly committed suicide when they heard that. They got all excited and asked Marty if she'd seen him and all. Old Mart said she'd only caught a glimpse of him. That killed me. The bar was closing up for the night, so I bought them all two drinks apiece quick before it closed, and I ordered two more Cokes for myself. The goddamn table was lousy with glasses. The one ugly one, Laverne, kept kidding me because I was only drinking Cokes. She had a sterling sense of humor. She and old Marnie were drinking Tom Collins's in the middle of December, for God's sake. They didn't know any better. The blonde one, old Bernice, was drinking bourbon and water. She was really putting it away, too. The whole three of them kept looking for movie stars the whole time. They hardly talked, even to each other. Old Marty talked more than the other two. She kept saying these very corny, boring things like calling the can the little girl's room, and she thought Buddy Singer's poor, old, beat-up clarinet player was really terrific when he stood up and took a couple of ice-cold hot licks. She called his clarinet a licorice stick. Was she corny? The other ugly one, Laverne, thought she was a very witty type. She kept asking me to call up my father and ask him what he was doing tonight. She kept asking me if my father had a date or not. Four times she asked me that. She was certainly witty. Old Bernice, the blonde one, didn't say hardly anything at all. Every time I'd asked her something, she said, What? That can get on your nerves after a while. All of a sudden, when they finished their drink, all three of them stood up on me and said they had to get to bed. They said they were going to get up early to go see the first show at Radio City Music Hall. I tried to get them to stick around for a while, but they wouldn't, so we said goodbye and all. I told them I'd look them up in Seattle sometime if I ever got there, but I doubt if I ever will. Look them up, I mean. With cigarettes and all, the check came to about 13 bucks. I think they should have at least offered to pay for the drinks they had before I joined them. I wouldn't have let them, naturally, but they should have at least offered. I didn't care much, though. They were so ignorant, and they had those sad, fancy hats on and all. And that business about getting up early to see the first show at Radio City Music Hall depressed me. If somebody, some girl in an awful-looking hat, for instance, comes all the way to New York from Seattle, Washington, for God's sake, and ends up getting up early in the morning to see the goddamn first show at Radio City Music Hall, it makes me so depressed I can't stand it. I'd have only bought the whole three of them a hundred drinks if only they hadn't told me that. I left the Lavender Room pretty soon after they did. They were closing up anyway and the band had quit a long time ago. In the first place, it was one of those places that are very terrible to be in unless you have somebody good to dance with, or unless the waiter lets you buy real drinks instead of just Cokes. There isn't any nightclub in the world you can sit in for a long time unless you can at least buy some liquor and get drunk, or unless you're with some girl that really knocks you out. Chapter 11 All of a sudden, on my way out to the lobby, I got old Jane Gallagher on the brain again. I got her on and I couldn't get her off. I sat down in this vomity-looking chair in the lobby and thought about her and Stradlater sitting in that goddamn Ed Banky's car, and though I was pretty damn sure old Stradlater hadn't given her the time, I know old Jane like a book. I still couldn't get her off my brain. I knew her like a book, I really did. I mean, besides checkers, she was quite fond of all athletic sports and 
After I got to know her, the whole summer long we played tennis together almost every morning and golf almost every afternoon. I really got to know her quite intimately. I didn't mean it was anything physical or anything, it wasn't, but we saw each other all the time. You don't always have to get too sexy to get to know a girl. The way I met her, this Doberman pincer she's had, used to come over and relieve himself on our lawn, and my mother got very irritated about it. She called up Jane's mother and made a big stink. My mother can make a very big stink about that kind of stuff. Then what happened, a couple of days later, I saw Jane laying on her stomach next to the swimming pool at the club, and I said hello to her. I knew she lived in the house next to ours, but I'd never conversed with her before or anything. She gave me the big freeze when I said hello that day, though. I had a hell of a time convincing her that I didn't give a good goddamn where her dog relieved himself. He could do it in the living room for all I cared. Anyway, after that, Jane and I got to be friends and all. I played golf with her that same afternoon. She lost eight balls, I remember. Eight. I had a terrible time getting her to at least open her eyes when she took a swing at the ball. I improved her game immensely, though. I'm a very good golfer. If I told you what I go around in, you probably wouldn't believe me. I almost was once in a movie short, but I changed my mind at the last minute. I figured that anybody that hates the movies as much as I do, I'd be a phony if I let them stick me in a movie short. She was a funny girl, old Jane. I wouldn't exactly describe her as strictly beautiful. She knocked me out, though. She was sort of muckle-mouthed. I mean, when she was talking and she got excited about something, her mouth sort of went in about 50 directions, her lips and all. It killed me. And she never really closed it all the way, her mouth. It was always just a little bit open, especially when she got in her golf stance or when she was reading a book. She was always reading, and she read very good books. She read a lot of poetry and all. She was the only one outside my family that I ever showed Allie's baseball mitt to, with all the poems written on it. She'd never met Allie or anything, because that was her first summer in Maine. Before that, she went to Cape Cod, but I told her quite a lot about him. She was interested in that kind of stuff. My mother didn't like her too much. I mean, my mother always thought Jane and her mother were sort of snubbing her or something when they didn't say hello. My mother saw them in the village a lot, because Jane used to drive to market with her mother in this LaSalle convertible they had. My mother didn't think Jane was pretty, even. I did, though. I just liked the way she looked, that's all. I remember this one afternoon. It was the only time old Jane and I ever got close to necking, even. It was a Saturday, and it was raining like a bastard out, and I was over at her house on the porch. They had this big screened-in porch. We were playing checkers. I used to kid her once in a while because she wouldn't take her kings out of the back row, but I didn't kid her much, though. You never wanted to kid Jane too much. I think I really like it best when you can kid the pants off a girl when the opportunity arises, but it's a funny thing. The girls I like best are the ones that never feel much like kidding. Sometimes I think they'd like it if you kidded them. In fact, I know they would, but it's hard to get started once you've known them a pretty long time and never kidded them. Anyway, I was telling you about that afternoon Jade and I came close to necking. It was raining like hell when we were out on our porch and all of a sudden this booze hound her mother was married to came out on the porch and asked Jane if there were any cigarettes in the house. I didn't know him too well or anything, but he looked like the kind of guy that wouldn't talk to you much unless he wanted something from you. He had a lousy personality. Anyway, old Jane wouldn't answer him when he asked her if she knew where there were any cigarettes. So the guy asked her again, but she still wouldn't answer. 
She didn't even look up from the game. Finally, the guy went inside. When he did, I asked Jane what the hell was going on. She wouldn't even answer me. She made out like she was concentrating on her next move in the game. Then all of a sudden, this tear plopped down on the checkerboard. On one of the red squares. Boy, I can still see it. She just rubbed it into the board with her finger. I don't know why, but it bothered the hell out of me. So what I did was, I went over and made her move over on the glider so that I could sit down next to her. I practically sat down in her lap, as a matter of fact. Then she really started to cry, and the next thing I knew I was kissing her all over. Anywhere. Her eyes, her nose, her forehead, her eyebrows and all, her ears, her whole face except her mouth. She sort of wouldn't let me get to her mouth. It was the closest we ever got to necking. After a while, she got up and went in and put on this red and white sweater she had. That knocked me out, and we went to a goddamn movie. I asked her on the way if Mr. Kadehi, that was the booze hound's name, had ever tried to get wise with her. She was pretty young, but she had this terrific figure, and I wouldn't have put it past the Kadehi bastard. She said no, though. I never did find out what the hell was the matter. Some girls, you practically never find out what's the matter. I don't want you to get the idea she was a goddamn icicle or something, just because we never necked or horsed around much. She wasn't. I held hands with her all the time, for instance. It doesn't sound like much, I realize, but she was terrific to hold hands with. Most girls, if you hold hands with them, their goddamn hand dies on you, or else they think they have to keep moving their hand all the time, as if they were afraid they'd bore you. Jane was different. We'd get into a goddamn movie or something and right away we'd start holding hands and we wouldn't quit till the movie was over. And without changing the position or making a big deal out of it, you never even worried with Jane whether your hand was sweaty or not. All you knew was you were happy. You really were. One other thing I just thought of. One time in this movie, Jane did something that just about knocked me out. The newsreel was on or something, and all of a sudden I felt this hand on the back of my neck, and it was Jane's. It was a funny thing to do. I mean, she was quite young and all, and most girls, if you see them putting their hand on the back of somebody's neck, they're around 25 or 30, and usually they're doing it to their husband or their little kid. I do it to my kid's sister Phoebe once in a while, for instance. But if a girl's quite young and all, and she does it, it's so pretty it just about kills you. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about while I sat in that vomity-looking chair in the lobby. Old Jane. Every time I got to the part about her out with Shadleader in that damn Ed Banky's car, it almost drove me crazy. I knew she wouldn't let him get to first base with her, but it drove me crazy anyway. I don't even like to talk about it if you want to know the truth. There was hardly anybody in the lobby anymore. Even all the hoary-looking blondes weren't around anymore, and all of a sudden I felt like getting the hell out of the place. It was too depressing. And I wasn't tired or anything, so I went up to my room and put on my coat. I also took a look out the window to see if all the perverts were still in action, but the lights and all were out now. I went down in the elevator again and got a cab and told the driver to take me down to Ernie's. Ernie's is this nightclub in Greenwich Village that my brother D.B. used to go to quite frequently before he went out to Hollywood and prostituted himself. He used to take me with him once in a while. Ernie's a big, fat, colored guy that plays the piano. He's a terrific snob, and he won't hardly even talk to you unless you're a big shot or a celebrity or something, but he can really play the piano. 
He's so good he's almost corny, in fact. I don't exactly know what I mean by that, but I mean it. I certainly like to hear him play, but sometimes you feel like turning his goddamn piano over. I think it's because sometimes when he plays, he sounds like the kind of guy that won't talk to you unless you're a big shot.